I want to first uh, mention the two papers that are re very relevant to this conference, and many of my comments are applicable to both these papers. Maybe you should consider writing the three authors in a single paper. Uh, that's up to you. I'm not. I'm not saying anything. But lots in common, and you can take many points and put the energy together. So um, there's very there's hardly anything I would disagree with in these two papers, but I want to add more. I have a lot of things I can suggest that should be added. To summarize, I think uh, both of you guys have captured, both papers captured, that Pollock has a disdain uh, beneath this veneer of appreciating Sanskrit. What a beautiful language, how great, but there's a disdain for much of it, especially attempts to revive it. And it kind of very determined, dogged approach to determination to make sure uh, you are convinced that it is dead. And even if it is not, to make sure he kills it. One could also say that translating 500 volumes in the Murthy Classical Library into English so that the next generation don't need to read Sanskrit, they can read the same stuff in English, is certainly a project to kill it. So whether it is dead or not, the project is really to tell you that it's already dead. To tell you that it's already dead when actually the idea is to kill it. That sort of thing. Maybe like the, somebody comes and commits murder and he says, this guy's already dead, you know? <laughs> so uh, keep that in mind. It's a very important part to see what, how, what the big strategy is. The, uh, and he, there's a rejection of post-independence post attempts by Indians to uh, revive the language, he doesn't like all that. He insinuates politics, political motives, but actually in doing so, he himself is showing his hands. Uh, use of selective evidence, he ignores what doesn't fit. He picks four incidents across all of India over a thousand years, and even in those four, manipulates the data. So. When it's a Muslim doing something, it was sort of good thing. When a Hindu does it, it was a bad thing. And actually, I don't. It's been a while since I wrote on the stuff, but there's actually a quote in my book where he actually very clearly says that any claim that Muslims were responsible must be discarded, rejected immediately. <laughs> right? I mean, something like that. There's a statement like that. So he's uh, he's he, and he's very. Uh, in his own, you have to, uh, when you look at one aspect of Pollock surgically, like those papers, it's wonderful, but only after reading hundreds of papers and three, four thousand pages of books of Pollock, you realize how this fits into the whole scheme. It gives you another perspective also. I'll give you a little bit of that. Yeah? So this one of the overarching narratives of Pollock is absolute defense of Islam and in the student also the one who wrote on Aurangzeb, the great guy and all that stuff So this is, this is, this is a full-fledged defense of Islam and you see that in the depth also total alliance he uh, both of you caught up got this very good nuance he's very very careful always to Start off by admitting the opposing point of view to show to cover himself that, that so you don't think that he ignored it. He, 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 he include all kind of data. Sometimes go on for 10, 20, 30 pages giving all this random stuff. You don't know what does. 
and this is a random assortment of data. Later, someone told me that he's hired six faculty people in Delhi University alone. Different, there are different people who supply you with data. And so when he's collecting it, maybe that's why uh, the books become very big with a lot of data, but not much of it is not relevant to the thesis. But it's there to confuse you. I had a <coughs> boss who used to say, if you cannot dazzle them with brilliance, baffle them with bullshit. <laughs> so really put a lot of bullshit into his books. Like something which doesn't really belong, doesn't have anything relevant, just some fact for the sake of fact. And after putting a lot of this data, suddenly it dropped. Like it's not analyzed and, and uh, refuted or concluded, but it's like uh, it was there for fun. It's like a commercial break, something like that. And you don't know why it was there. So much of it is like that. And so some of it is data which would actually, if you underline it, it opposes his thesis. So it's full of contradiction also. But he just ignores it. It's like, doesn't, don't matter, don't, don't, don't remember what I say, just forget it, that kind of a thing. You see? So there's a, there's full of holes in that sense and full of confusion. And I think it is meant to baffle people. So you, I, because his pe the people who, if you want to see the effect he's producing, you should go to the Jaipur Literary Festival. Eight years in a row he was celebrated, big shot, full panels on him, multiple panels, all phrasing, all kind of stuff. And those people there do not know what he's talking about and that is why they're so impressed. It's true. It, <laughs> they have no idea. And Professor Jha also said that his English is not ordinary English. Even people who know proper English cannot understand what he's saying. Because it is full of hoopery and complicated, convoluted, convoluted, just unnecessary. And it is almost like deception that you know, okay, I'm this big shot from this prestigious place, so I, my conclusion you have to just agree. Uh, the rest is too complicated for you people. It's that sort of a strategy. So I'm glad that both of you picked that up. Uh, now, uh, he's uh, definitely trying to create bhed between Sanskrit and the vernacular very clearly all the time. So, in the beginning, Sanskrit was the aggressor and it invaded the rest and the dominant people and all that, Sanskrit, and the rest were lower level strata people and all that. And then thousand years later, uh, the uh, death of Sanskrit is because the vernaculars fight back. It's sort of like, you know, now it's time for the Dalits to hit back. Okay, that sort of, you have to see the rest of his work to see what he is planting, what, what are, how the things have been lined up. So the death of Sanskrit is also a liberation of uh, lower castes who were not entitled to uh, being uh, access to Sanskrit because his other chapter, other works that you haven't covered in, in these two papers are full of that particular social issue that uh, Sanskrit also denied other people, women and Shudras and so on, the right to access it. So they had the vernaculars. So it's the death of Sanskrit at the hand of the vernaculars is also sort of like, okay, now the lower strata are hitting back, taking over. Okay. So that is an important part. And then you also picked up that Sanskrit is driven by power. The whole thing is power, or culture and power, power. And political philology is a term 
to say, to say I'm going to do philology, which means philology is to find meaning in texts, what it means, how to interpret. And political philology is his term where the purpose of the philology is to look for political motive, who exploited whom, who conquered whom. That is it. So it's not, there's no sacred meaning in the text. It's political meaning in the text. That's why one of the bylines in my book is, is it sacred or political? That is the debate. Okay. Now, um, nobody has bothered to do Purva Paksha of him for a long time, on our side. <coughs> I asked him, you know, how come no one has done for, for, such a, for a person with such a huge corpus of work? Shingeri about to appoint you as some big shot representing them. You are in charge of 500 volumes being translated. Government of India given you Padam Shiri, National Award for Sanskrit. All of these big akalas, how come no one has done a critical analysis? He was very honest and truthful in saying, I never stopped them. They just never did it. And he's right. However, Radha Vallabh Tripathi was asked to do a review of the death of Sanskrit. And I have his review. It's basically writing praise, kind of. Uh, it's nice, it's such good style, such rigorous. In the end, he mentions one or two. However, he could have done a little more here, a little more there. Just almost like lip service, almost like scared to bring out. So that's why I'm very glad that these two papers have done that. You brought it out, brought out the issues. But rather, one of the parties, the head of the Rashtra Sanskrit Sanstan, very big shot, and could have, should have, you know, he owed it to us as the one person who was invited to write a critical review to have done a critical review. But not done. So we have also uh, seen the, all this business about some Indian is invited, but he doesn't quite do it. Then they can say, you know, we invited, gave him the chance. They never did it. See? So we have our own uh, people also. We have our own issues to uh, worry about. Now, um, the there's a <clears throat> video of his, somebody, ever since I did this book, a lot of people have been clipping his videos and putting out, very good, very helpful actually. Some of the things that I'm saying, they found a video where he is saying it. So there's a video, just a three minute video, just somebody put it on Twitter and I sent it out also, in which he is saying that claims that Sanskrit literature started in the BC era are wrong because he says whether you like it or not, whether you were hurt by this fact or not, I am telling you the fact is that Sanskrit literature begins in the first thousand years after Christ. The beginning of Sanskrit literature. So, and soon after that it is dead also. <laughs> right? So, it's a now, you might wonder, there is just a technical position, you know, when it began, but it is not. A whole lot of post-dating after Christ has strategic value. There is a huge Mahabharat project going on, also University of Chicago, where he, he has worked before he moved to Columbia. Uh, that Mahabharat is... Uh, Gita was inserted 5th century after Christ or whatever and all that. Many of these things going on. And then the uh, uh, 
religion in South India or religion in Tamil Nadu, you people should know this because you are in Tamil Nadu here. If you look at the book Breaking India, there are one or two appendices. Uh, the, the first conference on religions in South India was in New York. Hillary Clinton was the guest of honor who wrote a nice letter saying very good, you know, printed also, I got that. Uh, so then the next one was in Tamil Nadu and they had several. So the whole focus was to date uh, Indian texts such that they could claim that St. Thomas had arrived before. Okay, so you see how this works is one person puts the dot, another person comes and he puts that dot and they may even pretend I don't even know the other guy and some student is asked to go connect it, make a theory. That's how it develops. So this whole business that uh, foreigners have brought anything of value requires the chronology to be changed because they could not have influenced something that existed in the past. They can only influence something that comes later. So bringing things after Jesus, when now he's bringing grammar, uh, you know, dharma shastras, uh, itihas, puranas, as later, okay, literature in general. Uh, that's a very serious, that's a huge thing that he's saying and he's written in many places also. Where what I have quoted him is saying something like uh, it's unclear with maybe 200 BC to 500 uh, common era after Christ there in that window all these things happen but now in that video he said very clearly that these are in the first millennium after Christ. So the idea of constantly delaying our dates is a very big strategy going on. You should notice that. Actually Archaeological discoveries are proving the other way. Archaeological discoveries are going on finding things older and older. They are finding things with the deities, with symbols, with this Vedic stuff. Older and older we are finding, but somehow they go on, you know, this Indology people go on delaying uh, the text evidence as much as they can. So there is a strange uh, kind of a game going on. Now. Another thing you should uh, point out is, uh, I'm pointing out what you want to add are things that are missing or what, how do all the dots connect. So he's, he's exempting the British, besides exempting the Muslims, uh, in the case of the British he's silent, he's not, give, he's not saying anything because probably it would be difficult for him to, but he's just silent on it when, uh, regarding the death business. And also this Nehruvian era. He's not saying much on, uh, you know, their fault also. And totally silent on all the work done by Dharampal on how much Sanskrit and Patshalas were prevalent even in the 1800s. Huge amount of work on that. That you, you can add in the <laughs> So, another thing is, he's accusing BJP and, you know, Indian government attempts to revived Sanskrit, but then a good responsible analysis by an international scholar would consider that would do a comparison with, you know, Mandarin is highly promoted by the Chinese and Japanese is promoted by the Japanese government, the French government promotes France, this Alliance Francais and all that and 
how the Arabic language is promoted by their countries and Russian. So it is not something peculiar that Indian government would want to, which is made it look like we are supposed to be guilty and apologize for it. In France, there is a law that a certain percentage of any radio TV station that they give license to has to be in the French language. You can't just uh, ignore it. There are many countries with these kind of laws. And when we say that uh, everybody wants to uh, have English in their schools, uh, it is after a certain age. It's not as the mother tongue, but it's as a separate language, a second language. In China, uh, up to a certain class in school, it's in Mandarin. Instruction medium is in Mandarin. And then you learn English as a second language, but not as the medium of instruction. So it's, it's, uh, we have to differentiate that. Now, computational linguistics is today using Sanskrit grammar for computational purposes in a very, with, with huge commercial applications for language translation and things like that. So when you are saying the language is dead, it's a nice way to say, okay, there's nothing left, so we might as well steal. You know, it's a good way to say, we might as well just appropriate it because dead language anyway. You see, you see what I'm saying? It's more difficult to steal from something living because then you better credit it. Yeah? But if it's dead already, then we can take out what was useful, nobody would bother. So all these are connected motives. And this is a huge game. He's, he's a major player in this. Finally, uh, he's also championing He's presented himself to the government of India and to many good donors as the leading champion to revive Sanskrit. So how do you fit all this? How do you how do you, how do you make this contradiction seem too sensible? Well, I'll tell you how. He has a project called two projects going together called political philology and liberation philology. Political philology is a diagnostic. Liberation philology is the treatment for the disease. The disease being diagnosed is that there is social, there is some DNA problem in the Sanskrit that it is hierarchical, it exploits, it is political, it is socially and socially abusive, and this is because of the sacredness. So you have to remove the so the liberation requires you have to secularize it, you have to remove the sacredness in order to cure it of this social problem. And so when he says he wants to revive Sanskrit, it is not the Sanskrit of mantra and yajna. It is a secularized, cleaned up Sanskrit, devoid of the sacredness. So if, uh, you know, if you have a Kathak and uh, you have a, a dance with a story of uh, Dalit being woman complaining that I got, but it's in Sanskrit, Okay, that's a revival of Sanskrit. Okay, so uh, the uh, new, you know, the Dharma Shastras have to be say that you have to revive them, change them, modify them for new contexts. So, if you, I'm giving you the big picture of what I have, my conclusion of, of an, after analyzing him, reading him thoroughly, lot of stuff. The project is to train Indians, leftist, hardcore leftist Indians, with these theories and enough Sanskrit that they have some credibility, 
to go and rewrite to to rewrite new smritis for today new dharm shastras for today not called dharm shastras for right away but maybe eventually they will but these are the social theories dalit activism you know all, all the all the social interventions that are going on present present them as sort of this is the this is this is the the real cure for society that's liberation philology the, is the is the uh, liberate doing things to liberate uh, society from the problems that the political philology has discovered so the revival of sanskrit is a revival of a secularized sanskrit that is not going to have this brahmanical hegemonian problem or whatever their allegations are it's going to empower the dalits and it's going to so it's going to be a very different kind of a social order and that's that's what the liberation project is all about and that is the project he is championing so whenever somebody like that is very nicely saying i'm championing sanskrit so it's such a beautiful language it's an amazing language i think we ought to have it more of it and the government of india needs to fund more of it the point is people don't ask hard questions people just get very quickly impressed and people have to ask the hard questions so a hard question would be in this revival uh, we should have yagna and mantra and the sacredness what is your opinion then you will get an answer that he is not interested in that you tell you that very clearly yeah uh, so the, i i conclude this uh, set part of my my review uh, but these are just my feedbacks for for you in both papers what i think was well done was a very close reading of pollock's particular book on the death of sanskrit that was very well done but uh, i would like to ask you if you have read other readings of this book my point is we should integrate other critiques or responses to sheldon pollock as well and not just do a close reading and nothing else uh, because ultimately i'm going back to some very very important points that uh, mr milotra did I mean, what is the bigger design? What is this liberation philology? You know, and uh, he's absolutely bang on that. Uh, uh, you see, it is a way to deauthorize, you know, all indigenous attempts at uh, you might even call it a revitalization of Indian civilization, and have these outsourced to experts like himself, who will be funded ironically by Indians like Rohan. He's saying that uh, the revitalization is a great thing, but I'm the one who do it. That's what he's saying. Well, he's the one who do it. That's it. So it should be outsourced to yeah. those guys, and yeah. you should have no say. And we give the money. We give my young people. We train them. That's the idea. It's a it's a recolonization of India. Yes, this is not post-colonial. This is re recolonial. Neo-colonial. Neo-colonial. That's what. So, okay, thank you for that observation and comment. Uh, any other question on the specific topic to the uh, to the presenters? We could take one at max two questions during the time. Yeah. I think, uh, from my understanding, uh, I think uh, there is a very strong point he is saying. He is not just saying Sanskrit is dead. Uh, it is dead in some historical sense. It has no capacity to make history, which means. It cannot respond. So when the British came, it is not responding. It retreated, and then it died. 
you know, same thing is happening happening now also. For example, when all the Pollock has been criticizing Sanskrit for last 30 years or so, it is not the Sanskrit scholars that are responding. It is Raji Maghotra that is responding. So it's still it, that his thesis is still strong, I think, in historical sense. How would you answer that? In some historical sense, it is dead. It is not Sanskrit scholars that are responding. It is only Raji Maghotra and his group that is, who is, let's say, an American that is responding. So how would you respond to the question? So there's a follow-up question. I think that's a good point. Now my question to both of you is a follow-up question is, to what extent do you think that one of the yardsticks that Pollock proposes you know, to see if a language is alive or dead is valid? One of the yardsticks he proposes is creativity. Not just language, but an entire intellectual tradition. And now this idea of innovation creativity, novelty. We have it in Sanskrit, Bhutana, etc. You know, Prachina versus Bhutana. But, to what extent do you think this is a valid criteria, criterion? And by that criterion, do you agree that the Sanskrit or the indigenous intellectual tradition lacked vitality? after the Muslim invasion and by the time the British, you might say, conquest of India had been completed, it lacked the capacity to offer a response that was comprehensive. Right, in fact, so if I summarize the question, is do you accept the criteria, one, and if the criteria is acceptable, then do you conclude that his conclusions are right? Is that the question? Yes. Also, an additional question. Okay. And comment. Okay. Okay. You're responding to the question. Okay. Go ahead. Please come here. Please underline 
दुष्यम मे वचा परम बट निपुणम विभाव्य having thought 100 times before you open your mouth <laughs> because bhavabodhavitah nadunoti chetah having understood me if you still find the gaps and point out the gaps i am least perturbed i hope i have answered your question so it is not the case that the tradition was not coming out with new ideas and it's a highly reflecting tradition unfortunately people are not trained in this still you remain outsider and still you question without being acquainted with what is going on for centuries after centuries this is the paradox so it is not that the sanskrit is not responding it has remained live and that is why navya not only that navya navya tara you know tara is a comparable more modern even modernist tama so navya navya tara navya tama these terms are being used what do these terms indicate is it death or life would any one of you of the speakers like to answer the question the question first question uh, first thing that was raised by professor paranjpay regarding uh, uh, whether we have considered the rebuttals that have come uh, we have uh, both of us i think we have considered hanader's rebuttal of uh, 2002 uh, but we haven't uh, we have kept uh, the other one uh, sudipto's uh, for the uttar paksha for a more detailed analysis but hanader does come come up with quite a few important points in the sense that he uncovers a lot of data that has been kept hidden by pollock which haven't been uh, intentionally not covered not focused on uh, and uh, i have uh, we have made our uh, mention of the statistical inexactitude some of the data that we mention in our paper is uh, 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 it also includes what hanader talks of so we have considered so uh, uh, i think it's a good idea anyway to check out all the rebuttals that have come thus far and then uh, probably consolidate our arguments yeah even i have handed us paper but uh, i think uh, sorry uh, we can consolidate and uh, second question it's uh, i mean uh, it takes us to a whole new level to think of uh, what would comprise or what would actually define the depth of a language i mean pollock has considered uh, some of it but he uh is evasive or he is superficial in his comments as to as he as he defined that uh, uh yeah he defines it only specifically to the absence of any new uh, creative yeah. and the moment he says why should he disagree to only kavya exactly uh, this is one of the points that we make i mean both of us have uh, made in our papers uh, which is that uh, i mean uh, one section of our paper deals with the numerical aspect of um literature or knowledge production which is um, i mean um, we had uh, taken it a bit mathematically i mean uh, it's very difficult to extrapolate uh, if we are considering only a narrow section of uh, uh, literature or knowledge that has been produced which is kavya and try to extend the conclusions 
of say just uh, the cavia production and that too with in specific slivers of the very large time scale that uh, Indian civilization has been here, um, it becomes extremely tenuous and it becomes extremely uh, tricky. It's a it's very thin uh, thin ice that he's skating upon there. Um, when we try to extrapolate that, he is leaving out uh, scientific literature. He is leaving out uh, uh, commentaries. I mean, really huge commentaries like Sayana's um, literature produced uh, by way of, let's say, Navyanyaya. The developments that have happened. It's uh, the enormity of the corpus that is there, considering only Kavya as a Managanda. That is extremely tricky. And uh, in the paper, uh, we have actually mentioned uh, this particular, I mean, when we take the meta level of analysis, uh, this is not, uh, this is the reverse of Manadhina Maya Siddhi, this is Mayadhina Mana Siddhi. He is taking the measures in order to uh, substantiate the final conclusions that he wants to reach. Yeah. I'd like to just add one point. Um, do you have an idea of the amount of unpublished Sanskrit literature, the amount of literature that still exists in manuscript form, not seen the light of day even once? Peter Scharf, in his last computational linguistics seminar, uh, international conference, he said 30 million manuscripts in Sanskrit remain unpublished. Does this show a lack of creativity or creativity? Uh, I'd just like to just quote from uh, the work here, uh, a distributed platform for Sanskrit processing which was uh, published. Um, here it is said, um, preceded by a strong oral tradition of knowledge transmission, the records of written Sanskrit remain in the form of inscriptions dating back to 1st century BCE. Extant manuscripts in Sans Sanskrit number over 30 million. 100 times those in Greek and Latin combined, constituting the largest cultural heritage that any civilization has produced prior to the invention of the printing press. So, uh, among, um, among linguists, the term language death has a somewhat different meaning than is being discussed here, namely, a language that doesn't change anymore. In that sense, Sanskrit is very much a dead language because, for example, the Vimana Shastra, you know, it is being discussed whether this is a genuine ancient word or a 20th century forgery. I don't speak out on, on the question of authenticity, but the fact that this can be thought shows that Sanskrit writers today write exactly the same Sanskrit as Veda Vyasa. Yeah, because Sanskrit is dead, it doesn't change anymore, and every Sanskrit writer wants to keep it that way. But in that sense, of course, Latin has been used for 2,000 years being a dead language. Why did Buddhism change over to Sanskrit from Pali? Because it was a dead language. Pali, you know, Pali didn't change anymore, but the living language in which the Buddha preached, that particular dialect was evolving constantly, was changing from region to region and so on. So that couldn't be used for international communication. You needed a dead language for that. So <laughs> in that sense, yeah. But in that 